Welcome to The Careful Photograph. I am your host, Tara Krynak. This week, my guest is Zora J. Murph, and together we will be taking a closer look at his photograph titled American Father from the series American Father, American Mother. As always, you can see Zora's photograph and find links to more of his work on our website and Instagram accounts at thecarefulphotograph.com and at thecarefulphotograph. Zora J. Murph is an American photographer and educator based in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He is co-curator of Strange Fire Collective, a group of interdisciplinary artists, writers, and curators working to construct and promote an archive of diverse makers. In 2019, Murph was shortlisted for the Aperture Portfolio Prize, and the following year, his work was exhibited as part of the new photography exhibition at MoMA. His most recent monograph, At No Point in Between, from Deus Books, was selected as the winner of the independently published category of the Lucy Foundation Awards. Murph is also the inaugural winner of the 2020 Next Step Prize awarded by Aperture and the Camera Club of New York. He is represented by Weber Gallery in London and is also currently shortlisted for the 2021 Louis Roderer Discovery Award. Zora J. Murph's work grows out of his conviction that we need to acknowledge each other because largely this world doesn't acknowledge us. His photography engages with this task of acknowledgement through portraiture, landscape imagery, and found photographs. In his deft hands, these simple elements combine into what has been described as a quietly devastating indictment of the multiple ways that violence is inflicted on Black communities. In this episode, Zora and I talk about a very new photograph, an intimate portrait of the artist's own father from a series that is still in progress. He describes what it was like reconnecting with his father through the making of this portrait and how in this new series, he turns towards the difficulty of bringing certain truths forward about his own familial past. Later, the conversation moves on to issues of systemic diversity and the importance of what the Aster Gates calls making work in the absence of light. In other words, persisting and creating art even when no one's looking. Or for that matter, the difficulty of making work under someone else's glare. These are questions that span the personal, the political, and the institutional. As Murph asserts, diversity from a whites-only perspective is not diversity. Tokenizing people is not diversity. Yes, there are institutional changes that need to be made, but sometimes it is just about some basic day-to-day human decency. How can we step outside of ourselves to consider the lived experiences of other people. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Careful Photograph. I'm here today with Zora J. Murph. This is The Careful Photograph. I'm your host, Tara Krynak. We are discussing a photograph from the series American Mother, American Father, and the title of the photograph is American Father. And... um, I've, I wanted to start this, I mean, we usually start with description by the artist, but I wanted to find a way to bring in some of my students' um, voices. So I had them do a writing exercise, Zora, yeah. and I 
um, I had them just look at your photograph with absolutely no context. I didn't give them any context. And these are students from a liberal arts background. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not, they're not uh, really like photography majors or anything. They come from all different backgrounds, which I find really interesting um, in a class like this. So they're all interested in photography, but I'm going to read a, a description by a student. Okay. And this is Olivia Meehan, and she writes about your photograph. She says, this is a portrait. A black man stands at the center of the photograph. He wears light blue denim overalls and a jacket. The color of the jacket contrasts sharply from the dead yellowing grass, which makes up two-thirds of the background of the photograph vertically. It is autumn. The grass holds dead leaves between its blades, and you can see the movement of the wind in the slant of the grass to the bottom left of the man. The grass meets a forest, dense at its roots and enveloped by blackness, but sparse as the eye travels up towards the trunk. Gray light can be seen fragmented by branches. The forest leaves are brown, are the brown of the grass, but flashes of evergreen cut the gently muted colors that make up most of the background. The man stands up tall and he has his right shoulder tilted slightly towards the camera with his left foot slightly behind his right. He returns the viewer's gaze and looks slightly down at the camera. His whole body is illuminated by a white light, so you can see the textures and shades of his clothes and skin clearly. He places his left hand over his heart. This hand bears a silver ring and watch. His right hand sits in his pocket of his jacket. The color of his jacket is leather and is the same color as the brown leaves behind his head. His shadow is lightly visible to his left on the grass, but its form is disrupted by another picture pasted onto the first. The picture is in black and white, dot, dot, dot. My main question about this image is where did this man meet the photographer? What is the temporal difference between the two images? I thought that was a really uh, kind of uh, poetic description, actually, of your work. Um, yeah. And I, I would say, yeah, do you, well, do you have... Um, well, I wondered, you know, for our, our listeners, we are imagining this photo, but we can also access the photo on, on the website. But, th- but this is also about kind of finding a way to talk about photographs mm-hmm. and how do we describe them when um, we don't have immediate access to them as well. So is there anything that you would add to this description? Um, I mean, you know, I don't know if I would. I, I, I liked how, <laughs> how tricky uh, that description was because I expected <laughs> it just to be very objective. But then, yeah, I don't know. There was yeah something, like you were saying, very poetic about it. And I really do appreciate that, um, you know, this, uh, this student was thinking about um, the time difference between, you know, the color part of the image and then the black and white photograph, you know, that's uh, pasted in the bottom of the frame. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't have anything to add. I think, I just think it was a very, yeah. very nice description. Actually, I want to maybe ask them if they want to like, just start describing all of my images for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
There were some really, I mean, I, a lot of um, the students wrote about your work because they could choose between two photographs and many of them chose your photograph to describe. And what I found was most common amongst all the descriptions were, was this, um, this reference to the hand over the heart, Mm -hmm. which I actually didn't read that way. I just read it as as his hand just kind of resting on the part where his belly kind of makes a, almost like a, a shelf for his hand. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it seemed more like a physical <clears throat> uh, resting on, on a part of his body rather than like the hand over the heart. But there were about, I think four to five other students who, described the hand over the heart, which I found really, um, like there was something uh, significant, I think, about that description of the hand over the heart. Mm-hmm. And then the part, the the way, I, I remember seeing this photograph or on your Instagram account mm-hmm. um, without any description or caption, and I just... I loved the way that you disrupt the image with that little black and white square at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in a way, like when my students and I talked about this image, we also talked about the way that you kind of are preventing us from entirely consuming the image as a portrait because you're disrupting the plane. Like we're, we're not kind of allowed to entirely consume this, this portrait because there's another kind of portal or some kind of other thing happening. I guess my questions are just the same ones my students have had, which is about, you know, what the temporal difference between the two images are and kind of um, some of the context for understanding this portrait and how you made it. Yeah. I'll talk about maybe some of the formal qualities first, but I can't really, Mm -hmm. I I was going to try to maybe avoid, you know, the kind of autobiographical telling, but it's a very personal image because this is my, this is my dad. Um, Yeah, I think, oh, it is your dad. Yeah, it is my dad. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay. But I think the, you know, like this sort of regal posture, um, which was kind of important to me in the moment. Um, but then, yeah, the, this disruption. Um, and to me, this was a relatively, it was like a new way of trying to expand my, my practice. You know, I, you know, have mm-hmm. like a pretty traditional, or I was educated by folks who were pretty traditional, you know, photographers. Um, and so, you know, this, to, this, would have been questioned a lot in grad school. I'll just leave it there. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think that... Uh, Do you mean the act of pasting the other photograph on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not that like... That, not that, that, it been, that would have been questioned? Yeah, not that it wouldn't have been allowed. It just would have been like, it would have been a tough sell. Um, and I think... Okay, and yeah, okay. And so and it's just something I, you know, never really kind of did in my own work. Um, yeah, so it, it is um, rooted in time like this gesture of pasting this image um, because these are two different moments separated by 
oh, I think about like half a year. But the landscape is really important in that they're both taken Mm -hmm. in Mississippi. So um, post-slavery, my dad's side of the family, um, you know, we originate in Chula, Mississippi. And uh, by circumstance, or so, yeah, we originate in Chula, Mississippi. You know, a big portion of the family decides to migrate up north to Chicago. Um, And so, uh, you know, my dad... um, like decided that he no longer wanted to be in Chicago and he, you know, met this, uh, this woman who's now his wife and she happened to be from Chula, Mississippi, (laughs) where my dad's family is from. (laughs) And he was, you know, very much in love with her. And so he decided to, uh, follow her to Chula. And so ends up, you know, in this kind of origin place completely by, you know, circumstance. Wow. Yeah. That's an incredible story. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, he left um, our family when I was um, like around like five, six years old, something like really young. And I, you know, would see him around every 10 years. Um, And so he came when I was like 14. And then I didn't see him again until I was like 24. And then I saw him again, 2018 um, was the last time I saw him. But this is from that last trip. You know, I moved um, from Nebraska to Arkansas, I was six hours away from Chula. Um, you know, my uh, friend and photographer, John Horvath, he wanted to do this um, uh, podcast where he takes a road trip with a photographer, like, and he will drive you anywhere you want to go. And then the goal <laughs> of the trip is just the, the mic is always on. And then we sort of see what happens. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I chose the destination of going to Chula to see my dad, but then to also learn a little bit more about you know this place that i'm from right in a sense this is on a plot of land uh where my great 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 grandfather i believe um built a church that's still standing and so i think like direct like the direction my dad is looking like towards me um right behind me is Mm -hmm. a is the church um and then also there is um, our family's uh, cemetery plot um, going back to uh, the matriarch of the family. And so, you know, I'm having this wow. really deep um, experience of connection, you know, me reconnecting with my mm-hmm. dad, you know, being in this mm-hmm. place, seeing, you know, my family history for the first time, you know, like a, like a physical manifestation of my family history, mm-hmm. you know, in this really special place. Um, and, and the goal of me going to see my dad was um, that I wanted to take a portrait of him. Like he was always really selfish in the way that he decided to leave, but then he would kind of pop back in whenever he, you know, felt he wanted to. And so I wanted to, you know, I didn't know how this visit was going to go. I didn't know what was going to result from it. I knew I was going to go and make a portrait of him. And so for better or worse, I at least had this thing that, that was selfishly mine. Right. And so just in the moment, you know, I was thinking about like what I wanted this portrait to be and I wanted it to be, I wanted it to feel very regal. And that's where the kind of posturing comes from. You know, I had him stand up straight and I had him put his chin up and, you know, had him put his hand on his chest, but also thinking about the night that I arrived in Chula and sort of the look on his face when we saw each other for the first time, because he, you know, hadn't seen, hadn't really seen, yeah, like, you know, um, yeah, seen, not seeing each other for 10 years, you know, a lot changes. So yeah, I was also thinking about that moment, and maybe in a way trying to recreate 
at least for me, like what I sort of saw in him in that, like, you know, when we, we saw each other again and then the, the attached image. Um, so that like I was hired uh, by the Atlantic magazine uh, the following summer to, um, to photograph a family who had their land stolen by the government, a black family who had their land stolen by the, stolen by the government. Um, you know, like they won this, this lawsuit and received uh, reparation, um, you know, for that. But it was like telling the story of that family. Again, it was like, mm-hmm. you know, that it was in Mississippi, um, you know, that it was, you know, like the, these people who are, are leading a very rural life, um, thinking about being in that place again and sort of considering like being being with people who felt like family in the sense that like that very much could have been my life had you know my um had my grandmother decided that she was going to stay in mississippi instead of going up to chicago you know what i'm saying um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so it pairs with the image in that way but i think that this <laughs> this gesture you know sort of decontextualized it feels sort of vulgar and then that like sort of vulgarity to me kind of contradicts the, you know, the, the portrait of my dad by himself. But I think it's very much like that, that conflict that I, that was important for me to be there because our relationship is very complicated. When you say that gesture feels vulgar, what, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but what gesture are you referring to? Um, the person holding the hose, you know, like bending down and grabbing this hose. Um, it just, to me, it felt really mm-hmm. sort of like vulgar and then thinking about its placement as well in the frame, but that's like, mm-hmm. you know, my dad's a vulgar person and it's a, a quality of his that I don't, I very much don't admire. And so, yeah, again, sort of bringing that back into the image in this sort of conflicting way. How is it vulgar? Oh, I think it, yes. to me, it sort of reads as like, you know, this sort of grabbing of like this phallic figure, you know? When you said vulgar, I immediately, like, that's the first thing I thought, but I was like, am I understanding that correctly or not? But I, I guess I am, you know, yeah. like that, that there's a, if I read that kind of circular image as phallic, um, and with the white gloves and the kind of bending down, um, and the shadow, because it's so, it's such a stark image, that black and white, it's very contrasty. And the image of your father feels in a way almost very gentle. So there's like these two competing aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Now I related the black and white image just to work, Mm -hmm. to labor, Mm -hmm. and with the denial of, of the face and most of the body, all you see are hands and this hose. But now I'm with the use of the word vulgar, and I'm just really interested in that word that you used. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I'm reading it very differently as like totally and completely symbolic. But then again, you have these two parallel histories, one of um, the displaced land, the the displaced family, the, the land that was stolen, and then as almost a reference to your own very literal relation, like the the displacement of you, f- like from your father. I think to me, again, it goes back to that sort of complicated relationship that, that we've had. Um, I think that to me, you know, like to me in that moment, I think as I was, like when I began to entertain, like sort of putting this image on top of the other, 
I was thinking a lot mm-hmm. about like the truth, you know, um, because when my dad left, like we didn't really talk about it very much. Um, it was just that, you know, he left and that was that. And, you know, we have to move on from it. Um, and then, you know, he would send, he was like very sort of disembodied, I would say, and that like he existed as letters and phone calls. And then, you know, like, again, like mm-hmm. I was saying earlier, he would show up, um, you know, like periodically. And so, um, yeah, I, in, in considering the truth, you know, I think that, um, and that I was sort of being recorded, you know, the, this process of reconnecting him was being recorded. I, I was thinking a lot about, yeah, like what sort of like story, you know, do you spin, right? Like, is it like this sort of, you know, only the, the positive emotional experience. Um, but every time I see him, it's, it's really painful in a lot of ways because I have to think about a lot of different things, um, you know, that I experienced yeah. both in his presence and also in his absence. Um, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that, you know, like we like can't have a relationship, but, um, to me, it's important to, it was important in this moment to bring that truth forward. But this was like the first time that I had photographed something that I, like a landscape, I'll say like that, that I felt very much like a part of and and connected to very deeply. It does feel different from some of your other um, series of work. And th- th- there's more about family history. And so wondering like, if you could talk a little bit about maybe this current series as a, as a series and what your mind is on in terms of like where your work is headed. It, it, I feel like this is definitely like a new direction or am I? Yeah. I mean, I it, misreading. No, that? I, I, <clears throat> I think that it is, you know, the, the work that I've made before um, at no point in between corrections I very much like tried, like a lot of it is, is rooted in like, like objective, like, you know, kind of academic research to, to inform what it was that I was photographing. And in this work, it's not to say that, um, that research aspect has disappeared. I think that it's, it's just shifted to a more internal space to where I'm just now interested in, you know, thinking about things, learning about things as they come up rather than maybe trying to find like a particular topic to inform the making. I mean, in, in this series, I feel like your position as the photographer is now complicated by your insertion of yourself, of your history into the work. And so I, I wondered, like, what, what is that transition like for you? Yeah, I think, yeah, positionality is like a good way of, of putting it, you know, succinctly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I feel like it reminds me of this time I was in grade school and our teacher gave us this assignment that we had to like research and then like draw or recreate, you know, like through art, um, our family crest. And so, you know, like I didn't, you know, like I didn't know what a family crest was. And of course she like explains it. Mm -hmm. And then like, I'm thinking like, well, 
is like, does everyone else, ha- is this like ev- something everyone else just has like up in their house and that we just don't have? <laughs> and I remember asking like my grandparents about it and they just kind of look at me like, kid, you're crazy. Just like go do your homework. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And so, you know, after like, you know, kind of like, I like legit looked in the encyclopedias. Like, isn't that a throw? Like, talk about a throwback right now. I would like legit, <laughs> I legit like you, like we have this volume of encyclopedias like, that my, I think my dad may have bought and left when it, whenever he left. But anyway, I like actually looked up what a family crest was. Right. But then that was like, as far as I could get. And then, like there's no way for me to find any other information on what my family crush should be. And I remember like making different variations of it. There was one that was very like sort of Africanized. I, I thought about that <laughs> while I was making this image of my dad. And just again, this sort of like wanting to make like this really regal image is thinking about like if I were to make you know, like a commissioned, you know, like family, like a commissioned painting, right? Like, you know, of a family member or something like, what would that portrait look like? Uh, And this is very much what came to mind. But then thinking about that gesture of, you know, one's hand over one's heart, and then even hiding his other hand, like that was very intentional. Mm -hmm. And that like this sort of idea that like, you know, this dude always has like another trick up his sleeve, like I, that I never fully like really feel like I can trust him, you know, with my with my love or my loyalty. And um, yeah, so there's just those like kind of subtle things that exist, but they those subtleties relate back to me and sort of my thoughts and experiences. And and, you know, I think that again, this is something that's never really been absent from my work. I don't think that I've ever really forefronted it or brought it into like the making itself. Mm. Right. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it sort of has to do as well with the idea of, you know, I've heard, and I've heard you talk about this on other um, podcasts and I think every portrait photographer has asked this question, but a lot of times people will describe as a portrait photographer sort of describing their process or the way that they take portraits as collaborative. And I always, I always think of this as a little, I mean, a little disingenuous just because it is the photographer who has the power in the situation. You know, I, I always think of like, if you're making a portrait, even if the, even if you're collaborating with your subject, you still have the final, say in terms of like how you're editing, how you're cropping, where the image is distributed, how, you know, people engage with it on, you know, like, so I, I hit, I mean, part of maybe my question around this is in this case, like I'm questioning the power dynamics (laughs) of, it's actually more complex because I see there's, there's some, some kind of the, the power dynamics and especially like with you, the act of you placing that black and white photograph over it is a kind of disruption, but also like telling a different story, cluing us into some of the ways that we should be understanding this portrait. Th- this also reminds me of kind of the very formal typology portraits of like August Sander. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the, 
that you title it like the American father, Mm -hmm. because there's so much in that title that I think also references um, these, these photographers who were really interested in types. I guess I'm, I'm trying to ask you about like your relationship to those kind of images in terms of the making of this photograph Mm -hmm. and also the power dynamic. Yeah, I think, well, you know, and, you know, it's something that I've said before, but I, yeah, I I think the the power dynamic is always skewed towards the photographer because like you were saying that we have, you know, the power to distribute the image, edit it, crop it, do whatever, right? Um, And, and so while the process, I think the process of making an image can be collaborative, but I think that's like where the, once the, you know, the person that you're photographing is out of the picture, uh, pun not intended. Yeah. Well, I mean, even my, you know, my sort of intention going into it, that I was, you know, intending to be selfish. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but like using that as like a kind of defense mechanism. Another thing my students commented on was they felt like the hand in the pocket was a clenched fist and that it felt almost like um, holding tension in the hand that they, that they felt was like um, like a fist, like a like a punching fist mm-hmm. um, was what another student described that as huh. that the hand doesn't necessarily fit in that pocket and it feels like it's clenched. Yeah. I liked that they picked up on that as well. Yeah, man, you really put your students to work <laughs> on this image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, part of it is just also the the pleasure yeah. in looking at an image like this. In a lot of your work as an educator, I would say that you have been very vocal about um, sort of I don't know, the attention that you're receiving right now and sort of like thinking about the art market and your work in terms of this current moment. I just watched this documentary and the artist Theaster Gates appears towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Black Art in the Absence of Light. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't had the chance to I, watch it yet. I'm excited to, to watch that. Oh, it's so good. But at the end, the Aster Gates appears and he said, I just want to read to you this quote. Yeah, and yeah, I just wanted to see what you thought of what you thought of it. Yeah. But he says, black art means that sometimes I'm making when no one's looking. He says, for the most part, that has been the truth of our lives. Until we own the light, I'm not happy. Until we're in our own houses of exhibitions of discovery, of research, until we've figured out a way to be masters of the world. I'd rather work in darkness. I don't want to work only when the light comes on. My fear is that we're being trained and conditioned to only make if there's a light. And that makes us codependent upon a thing we don't control. Are you willing, he asks his fellow artists, to make in the absence of light? Yeah, that's pretty powerful. I really thought of that quote in relationship to some of the things that you've been saying about your own career. And also, you know, I met you and I first saw you speak with Reina Mm -hmm. at a regional SPE conference that I brought my students to. That was a while ago. And that's the first time that I was introduced to your work. And you and Reina spoke together about your collaborative work. Yeah, yeah. I would say that was kind of at a time when... um, 
you know, your career is booming right now. And I, I was like, but you've been making this work for a long time, like all of us have. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about like what the Esther Gates calls to make in the absence of light. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that it's definitely something that I think is just a lot. There's a lot more space to talk about it now because of you know, COVID because of, you know, the continued mm-hmm. murders that we've witnessed by, you know, police officers, um, you know, the, <laughs> the insurrection, yeah. uh, white surrection is how I refer to it. You know, I think that it it's just, we can no longer hide from the truths of the world, right? Um, institutional racism is real. Uh, you know, the fact that we're seeing, you know, Black people being murdered in mass by police officers is because the practice of policing was based on slave patrols. And, you know, I, I think that because that space is open to speak about those things is that we can also begin to address the nuance the, yeah, the nuance that exists, you know, like in, in behaviors and intentions and, and call them out for what they are. And not even really, you know, to get people to talk about it or acknowledge it or own it, because often people don't want to. But just because it's like, this is what we're doing now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I, I think that, you know, this idea of, you know, making when the light is on, you know, this idea that, you know, we have to sort of wait around for our turn for people to to decide that they're going to do, you know, like a, the show on blackness or that they're going to, uh, right. right. Or, you know, like with what's going, everything that that's, you know, happening, like that's happened to me since, you know, last spring and summer is that it just made it very apparent that like you've had this power the entire time and you, you know, like you just decided that you weren't going to do it. Like you weren't going to show black artists. You weren't going to give us any opportunities un- unless it suited you in some particular way. And so I feel like these things coming into sharp relief is not what the Astor Gates is, is talking about necessarily, but just that. No. Right? Think- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. There's something more existential that I think he's talking about. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's more about, this idea of like, like maybe like a, a way of putting it is like institutional ownership, right? Not institutional ownership, but like just this this power imbalance that exists because you know, like black people don't exist in these positions. You know, like we don't get to choose, right? Like we don't get to have a say. We just have to sit and wait for somebody to show up and give us the opportunity, right? Until there's like that fundamental paradigm shift, I feel like we have to question like, why are we doing this? Like, why do we, why do we decide to participate in things? You know, how do we, how do we make, how do we take action to, to make actual change? And I don't think I have an answer to that, but I sure do, I sure should do have a lot of questions that I've been asking them of everyone lately. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I do have a lot of questions. I mean, I heard Coco, I, I dropped in on this Coco Fusco lecture and I heard her say that, and this was around the time that Brianna Taylor was on the cover of Vogue, and she said, well, I'm old enough to know that Brianna Taylor on the cover of Vogue is just window dressing, and that's not institutional change, because institutional change, and she was talking about how institutional change is, you know, it's not sexy work, <laughs> you know, like it's is, it's not, not visual culture. <laughs> and, you know, and I was just... Like, oh my gosh, she's just saying what we're all thinking, you know? And I loved it. I just was like, yes, like, 
no, you can't just post an, an Instagram list of like readings and then everything like that's your work. Like there's so much more work, like do the work, do the work. Like I, I just, sometimes I just, as I've been listening to you talk about these things in many other interviews, it's just really, it's really been resonating with, I think the ways that a lot of artists of color are feeling in this moment. Right. Um, well, I think, you know, and I, and I, oh, go, on. Yeah. go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I think it's, you know, like you talk about um, Coco Fusco and, and the comment, you know, like window dressing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like diversity from a whites-only perspective, right? Like that isn't diversity. That, you know, tokenizing people, that isn't diversity. I always think like when I ask about questions of diversity, especially within the institution, I'm just like, shouldn't it... Shouldn't it at the very least start with like questioning the ways that we, our own positions or our own artwork either challenges or doesn't, or or how, how do, how do, how do do we stand up to these larger systems of inequity? Like how do, how do, how does our own work function in relation to, or how do we function in relation to these like larger systems of inequity? And that, that, because my students are really, they're very concerned about these issues. And I'm just like, well, I think, I think, you know, it starts with just questioning our own our own relationship, right. Right? our own work and well, absolutely. what we do, what our work yeah. is. I think that there's a lot of maybe smaller changes that we tend to overlook mm-hmm. because we're sort of looking for the big kind of institutional fix when really it's like, I just need all of you to treat me with the dignity and respect that you treat my white colleagues with, you know, and, and to me, that's not really that hard to do if maybe people took time to consider the lived experiences of other people, you know, to maybe be more empathetic, to maybe think outside of oneself, which, you know, like this world that has sort of been bent to the will of whiteness, you know, like I think it, it creates, mm-hmm. it creates ways for people just to, to live in, in this, this sense of unawareness, whether that's willingly or unwillingly, but that's not our problem to fix, right? That's, that's some deep, self-reflection and some shit you have to go through on your own but that that living in that discomfort is painful and i feel like that's what often drives people away from right to sit with the difficulty to sit with that difficulty right you know and i and i feel like well you know people don't do well with recognizing or acknowledging our discomfort but but yeah i mean to me it's like of course there are you know changes within an institution related to like policies and practices and all of these things right but i also feel like we're talking about like just some just some day-to-day human being shit like some basic level human being shit at that yeah 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 i mean i think we're both in these i mean i always think of i i'm like I am in a privileged position. I do work in a privileged space. And so now it's like, I'm asking myself, like, what do I do with my privilege? And that's a question I ask myself, like literally on a day-to-day basis. And I'm just wondering, sometimes I look around and I'm just like, do other people ask themselves that question? Like, I don't know, because I'm constantly asking myself that question, you know, especially within this white institution and the white institutional space of academia. Um, like, I know that this is a privileged space and I know that I have some power. And so I'm like, what do I do with that? What do I do with that privilege? You tell the truth and you liberate other but people, yeah. right? <laughs> Sora, <laughs> Sora, thank you so much for doing this with me. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I don't I mean, this has been meandering, but you are incredible. I feel really privileged just to be 
talking with you about your photography and your practice and um, don't hang up yet until I <laughs> download your file. <laughs> but um, thank you so much for this conversation. This is Tara Krynak, and I'm on the back end of this episode with an assignment for our listeners. This assignment grows out of Zora J. Murph's practice and engagement with portrait photography. Make a formal portrait of your own mother or father and consider the space of the photograph carefully. Pose, environment, lighting. What stories do you wish to reveal or not reveal in the photograph? If you so desire, place another photograph on top of the portrait that may serve to disrupt or hide or reveal more about your subject. And I want to also follow up to say that we are now on Apple Podcasts. And if you listen to the podcast and have been enjoying our episodes so far, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It will help to fund the next season. Until next time, take care.